Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright right now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Dear Heavenly Father, give us your Holy Spirit. Now we ask to illumine the word of God just read to us. And Spirit, as well, would you grant us faith to draw closer to Jesus here this morning that welcomes anyone and anyone to come and find the healing and forgiveness of sins and the newness of the Holy Spirit that we all need. Father, meet us now in these moments, we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. It was a case for me back when I was in middle school and high school, and I think it's still the case in our region today, where for 6th grade to 12th grade, sometimes I would have a teacher in the classroom who was also a coach, a teacher coach. And they were not better or worse than teachers on the whole average. Some of the teacher coaches were better than others. My favorite teacher, who was also a coach, taught me, and it was, a, it was double period English, both in 6th grade and 7th grade. English was doubled up because they wanted us to learn words good. It was Coach Hernandez, who was the high school basketball coach, who also taught 6th and 7th grade English. In my best that I can do New Orleans accent, Jerry Hernandez was a great English teacher for me in 6th grade and 7th grade. He was a Vietnam vet, and one class period when I was in 6th grade, the whole 6th grade gathered together, and Coach Hernandez took a period to talk about his experiences in Vietnam with personal stories and pictures and slides. Out of all of the class periods in all of middle school, that was the one period that held us at most rapt attention more than anyone else, or maybe the second. But we loved Coach Hernandez, and whether it was from the Army or just because that's who he was, he was highly, highly disciplined. He was a basketball coach, like I said, and I was in the middle school basketball program there going into high school. Extremely structured practice was ordered down to the minute, and Coach Hernandez would always say, the little things, boys, it's the little things, as in you need to pay attention to detail. 
I still have dreams and sometimes nightmares about Coach Hernandez running around shouting, and there were, it's boiled down to the little things, boys, but you can add about 10 expletives to how, how he would explain that basic truth to, to us. But also, that same sense of discipline carried over into the classroom, and I was okay with it. I, I enjoyed structured classrooms. So things like Coach Hernandez at the beginning of each semester, remember I had him for two years, the syllabus outlined page after page, this is what we're going to be doing in class every day for this semester. This is what we're going to be studying. The expectations were completely laid out. The grading system was 100% transparent. And this is the only time this ever happened to me in middle school or high school. Coach Hernandez was the one teacher who, no matter what, always got tests or quizzes back to us the next day, automatic. And that was especially impressive because sometimes with high school basketball, and I experienced this in high school, we would have away games, grew up in New Orleans, that went deep into the Louisiana swamp, hours and hours to travel. And when you get that far deep into the Louisiana swamp, first you start to ask, am I still in America? And then you begin to ask, am I still on planet Earth? It's sort of like a greetings from Dagobah sort of situation. But even when Coach Hernandez would get back in the wee hours of the morning, the tests would always come back the next day. And not only was structure external for Coach Hernandez, but he also wanted to instill discipline in us as students. And over and over again, he would say, I want you to grow in the patience of waiting. I want you to grow in the patience of waiting. So for example, Coach Hernandez did not have a clock on his wall, and classmates would complain about that and he would say, this is an opportunity for you to exercise the patience of waiting. By staring at the clock, you are not going to make this class period go any faster, and it's only going to distract you. But worst of all, Coach Hernandez was the only teacher I ever had that when he was distributing back tests, all my other teachers, you'd get your test or quiz back at the beginning of the period. For us, Tests and quizzes were returned at the end. Students, I don't know if your teachers right now distribute before. I don't even know if maybe it just pops up as pixels when you get, when you get your grades. I'm, I'm not so sure. But Coach Hernandez taught from his desk, and it was absolute torture to be sitting there for a double period, 50 minutes times two, with that stack of tests right there and not knowing what I got. And Coach Hernandez could sense the distress in the room, and occasionally he'd say something like, I can tell that you all are agitated because you're not seeing your, your grades right now, but think of it this way. You're seeing your grade at the beginning of class versus the end will not improve your grade at all. And it's not as if there's something magical happening with this stack of papers right here that by some incantation, like sands through the hourglass, the grades on here are lowering the deeper we get into our couple of class periods, I am giving you the opportunity to exercise the patience of waiting. And when Coach Hernandez would say that, I and the other students would say, you know what, that makes a lot of sense. I feel better now. I will exercise the patience of waiting because this is an easy thing for me to do. No, we did not say that at all. We were like, we just want the tests now. 
Think about you and let's blow it up into some larger categories. Do you like waiting in patience? Or do you not like waiting in patience? But here are some life questions that you can do some diagnostics with. Why don't you try and think about some of the ways that your life right now would be better if either recently, today, or a long time ago, you better exercised waiting and patience. What sort of things might be better? Maybe it's financially, maybe it's relationships, maybe it's health, maybe it's happiness, but we don't like to wait, we don't like to exercise patience, and so we act out, and we have acted out with our words, with our wallets, with our appetites, with our bodies. Just give it to me now. And I know this is a big generalization, but I think culturally speaking here in the late modern West, we are not good at waiting, and we're also getting a little bit worse at it as time goes on. Most of this is through technological development, and I want to be clear, Technological development in a lot of ways is really, really good. And we have a lot of benefits that we didn't used to have because technology has developed. But as everything gets faster and more efficient, that leads us to become more and more instant gratification people, doesn't it? And it doesn't take a Yoda-level cultural critic to point to some things, some signs, some artifacts that indicate how we're being inculcated with this idea that we should get what we want now. Advertising, whether it's TV, social media, streaming services, billboard. If you can get this product now, your life is going to be amazing. Skip back to the 80s. I remember the day that a microwave came to the Anger household. And all of a sudden, food was able to be cooked so much faster. Communication. I'm really sad about the Mitchells leaving, but I would have been sadder 20 or 30 years ago when the old, really long-distance phone calls were super expensive, so Eric and I become pen pals and put little stickers and pictures on letters and send them to each other. But there's, we're able to keep in touch so much better. Travel, so much more efficient. And do you remember the phrase, the me decade? I think the me decade has something to do with self, getting what I need and what I want right now. Do you remember what decade originally was called the me decade? Tom Wolf 1976 essay, The Me Decade. And going from the 70s to today, we have just gotten mere and mere and mere and mere. The 2020s might be the meest decade yet. And there's been a shift. And I've talked in a couple of different ways, shifts from ancient period to modern period. Don't get me wrong, number two, it's not like the ancient period was awesome and the modern period is great, so it's not like I'm saying, I wish I was born in Gaul under the Roman Empire because things were not that great in a lot of different ways. But this isn't one of them. It used to be, when it comes to appetites, desires, and urges, if now like the Sprite commercial, I don't think it's still the tagline, but for a lot of years it was, obey your thirst, right? Thinking about appetites, urges, desires. In the ancient period, urges, desires needed to be managed. Today, 
appetites, urges, desires need to be indulged. And that is a really, really, really big difference. In ancient periods, it was thought, well, there are some good desires and some not, go good, not so good desires. There are some desires that are too strong. There are some desires that are too weak. And you have to manage it. You have, you have to bring them into alignment, sometimes via discipline. But now, to oversimplify the modern period, it's every urge is awesome, right? And as long as it doesn't harm anybody else, and the devil is in the details with that one because 10 different people are going to define as long as it doesn't harm anybody else 10 different ways. If you can do it and get it now, go for it. However, when we enter the life of the Holy Scriptures, kind of like Coach Hernandez said, only more. Waiting patience, and we'll unpack what it means a little bit, there are Christian virtues. And there is no human flourishing without it. So two parts for the rest of the sermon from here. Looking at Esau and Jacob in this story, we're going to look at Esau's negative example, and then we're going to look at a better way. So negative example, Esau, then look at a better way when it comes to waiting in and waiting upon the Lord. So, Building from last week, we had twins and tension. Isaac is Abraham's son, and there's this line of covenant blessing that God is designing to come through this family to the nation of Israel, and then through Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected to the whole world. Isaac is next in line. He marries Rebekah, and Rebekah has not one, but two kids. The blessing of twins... But there's a prophecy, they're going to be at each other for a long time. And Jacob comes out grasping Esau. And we have a hint of that tension once again here at the beginning of the story. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. They couldn't be more opposite from one another. And the focus of this story is on the birthright. Esau is the older child. He came out of the womb first. And in the ancient Near East, being born first, kind of a big deal when it comes to inheritance. Great Coach Hernandez SAT word, primogeniture. Do you remember that? Where if you're the firstborn in ancient cultures, you either get all or most of the inheritance. That's how it normally works, except that in this particular case, God told Rebecca that the older will serve the younger, and God is going to prefer the younger Jacob. And the tension begins here. As God's sovereignty is at work through scheming, self-serving plans. Jacob and Esau. Jacob, we said last week, his name is related in the ancient Hebrew to deceiver. And here we have Jacob doing some, if not out-and-out deceiving, at least some scheming, some man manipulation, where he manipulates Esau out of his birthright. We'll read it one more time. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, verse 29, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, 
and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Quick sidebar. I always chuckle when I get to this passage. When I get to the second to last verse, I think it is, and it says lentil stew. And I go, really? Is that, that's, that's the, you're going to sell your birthright and sidebar to the sidebar. For a lot of years after the Anger family would get back from vacation and we would overindulge and what we would eat very sensibly, Emily would always have for us on the night when we get back, lentils. We would have lentil stew, which was very tasty in itself, but it came to taste like sadness for our family because it always symbolized the end of the vacation. And so to this day, when I see, smell, or eat lentils, these lentils are telling me, your fun is over and you will never have any fun anymore. So Esau, all of this, you lose your birthright for lentils, this is a bad idea. And thinking about editorial perspectives here, it seems, and commentators will say, that Jacob, by and large, is portrayed neutrally here. He tricked Esau, kind of, but then was above board. It was Esau that, that made the decision, yeah, I'll give you my birthright. So if Jacob is neither praised nor condemned for his actions here, Esau is portrayed negatively. Here are some words that commentators on this passage have used to describe Esau. How would you describe him? Impatient, impulsive, clumsy, easily duped. One commentator used the phrase, he is a brusque brute, just kind of a big dummy, giving his birthright over because he's a little hungry. Now you might come back and say, well, at least at the beginning of the passage, verse 27, it says that Esau is a skillful hunter, but aha, that's probably meant ironically. Because what happens in the heart of the story just a couple verses later? He was out in the field, came back hungry. Must have been a bad day at the office for skilled hunter Esau. In fact, it must have been a bad few days at least because he's not just a little bit hungry, but he says, I am famished. I am about to die. So skillful hunter Esau, not actually able to, if, if the goal is hunting stuff to be able to eat them, not his skill set under the skillful hunter category there. So Esau there probably is not even a skillful hunter. And relatively rare for biblical narrative, at the very last half of the verse in our sermon text for this morning, there is an unusual editorial comment where the author peeks behind the curtain of what looks at least on the surface to be reportage, this happened and this happened, but here's the comment that tips the hand under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit what God thinks about this story. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus, here's the editorial, thus Esau despised his birthright. Thus Esau acted ridiculously. Thus, Esau did something that was very, very, very dumb. And when you get a rare editorializing remark like this, it encourages the reader, pay attention. See what's going on here. And it's not true that in every biblical story, the best way to read it is to find the good guy and find the bad guy. Be like the good guy, don't be like the bad guy. But especially with an editorial comment like this, we're being pointed out, this is not good behavior for you to emulate. In fact, the opposite. Don't be impulsive, impatient, clumsy, easily duped, easily manipulated on the basis of your appetites. But that whole instant gratification idea is so common now. 
How do we not like waiting? Let us count the ways. Think about financially. We're in a lot of debt as a culture, as a society. Historically, and it's gotten more and more this way, we overpay for houses and apartments that we can't afford, and we don't save enough for retirement. That's impatience. That's wanting it now. Or when it comes to health, we just eat and drink way too much. We don't treat our bodies in the way that we should. When it comes to addictions, what is addiction if not instant gratification with a twist of biochemical and neurology hooked in? I was coming back from a show, my oldest son Josiah and I saw a show in Atlantic City last night. We were talking about how, I mentioned this in sermons before, how gambling companies and casinos have neuroscientists on staff that identify the exact thresholds that both maximize profit for the casinos and also maximize the dopamine hit by letting you win a little bit. That is addiction by design. But it's preying on the impulse that we want it now. Or an instant gratification impulse affects our relationships in a lot of cases. If this relationship is not fun and life-giving to me right now, whether it's a friendship or a romantic relationship, I'm out. My relationships need to be fun all the time. We'll, we'll either lash out or we'll drop off. Or when you think about sex, a, another oversimplification, but we're coming to a cultural moment where unless it causes harm, the idea is it's a good and healthy thing to recognize that you should never say no to any sexual impulse you have. Just say yes all the time. That's what it looks like to be a healthy person. Two observations there. We are the first culture in the history of the world to have that view of sex. Are we sure it's the right one? And even think how this plays out in relationships and marriage, apart from sexuality questions even. What makes a legitimate or illegitimate divorce over time has shifted. So previously, if there was a husband or a wife that came to the other and said, I am not attracted to you anymore, therefore I am planning to, or I already have, begun a physical relationship with somebody else because I'm more attracted to that person. And to be sure, that's, that's happened since time immemorial, but the wronged spouse is actually the wronged spouse. And culturally speaking, we would say that spouse has the right to come back and say, I have been wronged. It was wrong for you to do this to me. This is unacceptable. But the tides are shifting. Where I'm not saying this is to a person or to a couple, but increasingly there are more and more couples where the same thing happens. Husband or wife, a spouse, not attracted to the one you're married to, attracted to somebody else, either has begun or is a physical relationship in this other direction, and tells that to the wrong spouse. Increasingly that wrong spouse will feel two things at once. I have been wronged. Your behavior is unacceptable. But then there's also another rising impulse where that wrong spouse will say, maybe I would be in the wrong to tell no or unacceptable to this person that I'm married to. What if I am getting in the way of the sexual expression of this person that is not gonna be my husband or wife much longer it would be wrong of me because the truest self increasingly is the sexual self 
if I really love this person, I have to let this person go for the sake of this other's per other person's flourishing. Only to observe that the tectonic plates of the formation of human personhood are radically shifting right now. Or more practically, when you've had your Esau moments and your Esau behaviors, when you've been impatient, when you haven't waited, what's the cost? What's the damage? What's accumulated? Or flip it around, when people close to you have had their Esau moments, impatient, impulsive, saying yes to what they want too much. How have our Esau moments malformed us? When we do act out and lash out and cross boundaries and take too much too soon, do we even notice or does it feel normal? I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that it's messaged to us in different ways that if you're not totally happy in every way right now, something's got to be super, super wrong and you should freak out. But we don't have to. And there are threads of this even within Christendom, not a majority report, I think, in our neck of the woods, but if you've been in church situations before that, where you've been told, don't pray for patience, has anybody, does that ring a bell for, for, for anybody? Don't pray for patience. The idea is, if you're praying for patience, you're not having enough faith to ask God for what you want right now. Or prosperity gospel, just name it and claim it. If, if you believe and have enough faith, you will get absolutely what you want. But whether religious or irreligious guys, this instant gratification impulse, God warns us against it. If we act out way too much and take what we shouldn't and act in impatience, not waiting, do you know what God does? He lets you have it. He lets you have it. If you look, for example, at Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, there's this refrain later on in the chapter, and God gave them over to their sins. That's what God does. A warning also from Paul in the letter to the Philippians. This is tough but true. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with their mindset on earthly things. And the phrases that caught my eye, their end is destruction, and especially their God is their belly. That's when we just say yes to everything, every urge, every impulse, every desire. And a quick note here, over the last few years in the church in America and in the West, there's been a raft of people deconstructing and deconverting from, from the Christian faith, including people that I know, and sometimes, as I hear stories just on the internet or whatever, or personal connections, I hear people that are walking away from the Christian faith say, well, at first I was really afraid to do that, but then when I started actually taking steps away and doing things that the Bible would consider disobedience, nothing happened, and so it just made me think, well, none of this stuff is real anyway, so I'm just going to keep doing it. But do you know what the Bible actually says when you take those steps away? What's going to happen? Nothing. God lets you have that instead of him. But there is a better way. 
and the better way is to wait in and wait upon the Lord, that's where God meets you. That's where you find the living Lord. Famous verses from the book of Isaiah. This is the Old Testament, a prophet before Jesus. Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. I ran a 5K yesterday and I lost to fourth and fifth graders. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Wait. And that's actually a key theological concept and term for the Christian life. After Jesus is crucified and resurrected, it's been said, we live in the already and not yet between the ages of Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. In the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, the kingdom of God has erupted upon the earth once again, and an era of peace and forgiveness and grace and healing has has begun, and we're already there. If you're in Christ, Paul says, you are a new creation. The new creation life of Jesus is in you. But Jesus has not yet come to heal and restore and bring justice to all things. So we're living in between. A fundamental structuring principle of the Christian life, like it or not, but I hope you like it, is that we're waiting. In the passage where Paul says, okay, over here their God is their belly, but he goes on to say, our citizenship is in heaven. And from there we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. We're looking ahead to the not yet, to Jesus who will transform us. Or one more passage from Paul here. If I had thought of it sooner, it would have been a reflection quote, but it came later in the week. In the second chapter of Paul's letter to Titus, you can go, and look, go ahead and look these passages up later. It's Titus 2, 11 and 12. Already not yet. Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In this passage, Paul is saying, for the grace of God has appeared. That's the already. But in the same breath, he says, we are waiting for the glory of God to appear. That's the already and not yet. And if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, hear this. This means that your identity is defined by the future. Not ultimately your past or your present. And there is no identity formation like this. In Jesus Christ, by grace and by grace alone, your primary selfhood, your identity is defined not by who you were or who was around you or who influenced you or who harmed you, or your present, whether it's great or horrible, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we await a Savior from there, even the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. This is who you are. And I think in a moment like this, we need to hear that because so much identity formation is actually malformation 
where if we think all who we are right now is a combination of our past and present, with our past, and I need to be careful here, our past is being collapsed only into trauma, which is real if it's happened to you, and in the present feelings. So cultural shorthand in a lot of cases for who you are as a person, you are your past trauma and your present feelings. And that's about it. But if that's all who we are, our past trauma and our present feelings, we are forming human beings to be incredibly fragile, anxious, and depressed, such as we are. But the great thing about waiting upon the Lord, it doesn't mean that we ignore hurt and hardship and lack. The opposite. We can look it straight in the eye and say this is really, really hard, but it gives us a place to put it. It gives us some context where we have hope for the future and help in the present. Not only that, the apostle says in Romans, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This hurt, this lack, this hardship is real, but it's not ultimate, because I'm looking forward to a better future, and God's Spirit is with me now so that I can experience the presence of the living Lord in the midst of all of this stuff. And what are the alternatives? By and large, it's either bury it or be buried by it. When you have hurt and lack and hardship in your life, bury it. Ignore, 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 ignore. Or just say, I'm powerless against these forces. Or try to live in a hazy middle ground where our hurt and our lack and our hardship is always fuzzy over our heads, coloring everything. And if you're here this morning or watching online as somebody who's still piecing together spiritual realities or is skeptical of such, thank you for being here. I would simply want to ask the question this morning. I think people would agree you don't have to be a religious person, you don't have to be a Christian to say, is waiting good or bad? Most people would check, or patience, good or bad. Most people would check, yeah, it's probably good. We should probably do that more. But to a skeptical person, I would ask, why? What's the rationale? What's the hope? It seems to me at some level, waiting in patience and not acting out makes the most sense when there's some confidence that things will actually be better later on. If they won't be, why not gratify now? And if we look at our world, how much confidence do we actually have that, hey, just on headlines alone, pretend God's not there. I really think things are going to get a lot better. Do we have that confidence? Take world health, for example. It used to be for decades, and I don't mean this at all in a pejorative sense, but when there would be an epidemic or pandemic in the East or the global South, here in the West, naively we would say, well, what happens in the East and the global South will stay in the East and the Global South. Not anymore. Think about ecology or environment. Well, wildfires and smoke, what happens in the Pacific Northwest, happily for us, will stay in the Pacific Northwest. And that's true, right? Or politics. Are you 
Or are any of your friends and family members saying, I'm really looking forward to the 2024 elections because I foresee a return to civility. And civil public discourse, I feel a turn coming when we're going to be a lot nicer to each other starting in 2024. Probably not going to happen. But when we wait upon the Lord, also, it's not a passive thing. If you look at the Psalms, and you look at the psalmist after psalmist after psalmist saying, I will wait upon the Lord, it is an active striving. And so as you wait upon the Lord, make it active. Name, identify for yourself and before God, this is a hurt, this is a hardship, this is a lack. God, I am waiting for you right now. And pray yourself into it in a lot of different directions. God, you tell me to ask, seek, and knock. That's what I'm doing. I'm praying for this. Please. And in the meantime, if it's not your will, give me yourself. In the psalm we're going to be looking at next week, there are eternal pleasures at your right hand. God, would I experience some of that right now? God, would I be clear-eyed and clear-hearted about where some boundaries around me are that in my discomfort about having to wait, I might cross them? Give me the strength not to act out, not to reach for it in those ways. And this is what the eyes and hearts and lips of faith are able to say. I'm not okay, but I'm okay. I'm not okay, but I'm okay. And look, I'm just a humble pastor, but I believe to the bottom of my heart that the truest and deepest and most real and genuine way for a human being to be able to say, I'm not okay, but I'm okay, is by faith in the living Lord Jesus. That's what enables us to say that. And wouldn't that be great in all of our hurts and hardships and lacks by the grace of Jesus Christ? I'm not okay, but I'm okay. And it's not just a personal thing. It's broader. It's bigger. The already not yet of the coming of the kingdom of God, that's also all about mission and justice because we actually know and have seen the future that God has revealed to us that it's actually true by God's power and love alone that the moral arc of the universe actually does tend towards justice. Read the headlines, it doesn't look that way. But God has promised that it will be. And it doesn't make us passive, but it makes us active for mission and for justice and for living and for speaking and for serving. As Jesus' very presence, it motivates us to work, to strive beyond ourselves, to not only be for our own tribe, to be for everybody. Professor I had in seminary, Harvey Kahn, said this, pray between the already of the kingdom come in Christ and the not yet of the kingdom still to come in Christ. We have been waiting for the time when God comes to vindicate his people and do justice. That day has come, but the day of final, full justice still waits for the Lord to return. Until justice rolls down like water, until the earth is covered with the knowledge of God, we keep asking. Until every nation calls him Lord, we keep knocking. And this is where we'll wrap up. When it comes to seeking to wait in and upon the Lord, 
or more generally, wanting to wait and be patient, even if not from a faith perspective on the surface. What do you do when you fail? What do you do when it's not just all the people around you that transgressed and lashed out and acted out and hurt you out of their Esau moments of being impatient, a brusque brute to you? But what do you do when you've done that to other people? And I can certainly remember when I've done that, including to people that I love very dearly. For that, we need Jesus. And one of the ways that we can think about Jesus, Jesus is the greatest waiter ever. Jesus is the greatest waiter ever. What is the Garden of Gethsemane if not waiting? Right before he went to the cross. Lord, if this is your will, take this cup from me. I don't want to do this, God. Yet not my will, but your will be done. Jesus, strengthened in the Holy Spirit, to his heavenly Father, in essence, was able to say, I'm not going to do what I was tempted to do, and I, Jim, was tempted to do in class, where just run up to Coach Hernandez's desk and grab the test, say, I'm not going to wait any longer. Jesus was able to say, I'm going to wait. I'm not okay going to the cross, but I'm okay. Or even think about one of the taunts. After Jesus is crucified, still alive, hanging on the cross, he's taunted, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. But Jesus waited there. I'm not okay, but I'm okay. And now we live as we confess every week the mystery of the faith between the already and the not yet. Christ has died. Christ has risen. That's the already. And Christ will come again. And in the meantime, we have forgiveness of our own sins for not waiting and being impatient and all of our others. We have hope for the future by grace in him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later. <laughs>